Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, Sharon presents Part 1 of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 8. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi everyone, welcome to our study of Luke chapter 8. Now this is the chapter of the women for Luke. Soon afterward, Jesus went through the cities and villages preaching and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and also some women. Some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. So more than one woman. It says many women followed Jesus. Many women followed Jesus. One of them, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Seven demons. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, who was Herod's steward. That would be Herod Agrippa's steward. She must have lived in his household with her husband. And Susanna and many others for, who provided for Jesus out of their means. So some wealthy women, some generous women, some successful women. And Mary, called Magdalene, had seven demons that had gone out of her. Now, the church fathers, some of them write that she had a perfection of... Uh, these are the seven deadly sins. There are seven of them. And they say that Mary had a perfection of sin to be delivered of, that she was a sinful woman. And the seven demons were maybe the spirit of lust and the spirit of envy and the spirit of pride and the spirit of anger and the spirit of sloth and gluttony and greed. And there's seven. So uh, that was an interesting commentary I read. A sinful woman was forgiven last week at the home of Simon the Pharisee. Remember that? And Pope Gregory the Great in 591 gave a sermon that expressed his belief that Mary, who had been cured of the seven demons, was the same person as the penitent prostitute who anointed Jesus' feet with ointment last week. But it never, ever, ever says in scripture that she was a prostitute. So this came into discussion, this sermon of Pope Gregory the Great. And he said she was the same Mary as Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha, and the brother of Lazarus, who was Lazarus' brother, that anointed Jesus with perfume in John 12. Pope Gregory the Great lumped all three of those Marys together and said they were the same person. And that caused quite a ruckus of scholarship between the East and Western churches. The church breathes with two lungs, the East and the West. The Western church fathers remained steadfast with the Pope and said they were the same Mary. And the Eastern church fathers said, no, they're two or three different women. And so St. Ambrose, St. Jerome, St. Augustine of Hippo, St. Albert the Great, and St. Thomas Aquinas all refrained from making a final decision. Very wise scholars. The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, he said that Mary Magdalene was the wife of Jesus. Uh, we know that is not true. And Jesus Christ Superstore had a very intimate scene between Mary and Jesus. So people have taken a lot of liberty with Mary Magdalene for some reason, artists in the Middle Ages. But these were women of means. They prepared spices, which were expensive to take and anoint Jesus's body. And eight of them got titled myrrh-bearing women because they brought spices to Jesus to the burial. Some five of those 
ones are in scripture and three are by tradition, I believe. Joanna was one of them, the wealthy women at the tomb bringing spices. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, Susanna, many others had means. Now, we know Jesus was from the city of Nazareth. He's called Jesus of Nazareth. Scripture calls him the Nazarene. Same with Mary. She's Mary of Magdala. There was a town and she got called Mary Magdalene because she's from Magdala. It's a fishing city on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They would make pickled fish there, salted fish that would be exported all the way to Rome. Magdala was a thriving town known for its fishing industry. And so it had a large population, 40,000 people and 230 boats, just 30 years, Josephus records that after Jesus' death. It was a thriving fishing town. And this is where Mary Magdala is from. So she would have come face to face with Greek and Roman influences, a very wealthy town, a fishing town, a lot of visitors, a lot of exporting going on. And it was destroyed by the Romans in 67 AD. The town was destroyed. But now there's an exciting new archaeological dig going on there called the Magdala Project. And you can see the early synagogue and some of the earliest, earliest things dating all the way back to the time of Jesus, like the Magdala Stone that has a beautiful seven-branch menorah, one of the oldest menorah. It would have been a place to put the Torah in the synagogue uh, to lay the book, the scroll. The Talmud recognizes Magdala as a prosperous city with a very immoral reputation and its demise in 67 AD by Roman troops. They saw that as God punishing the city for its wickedness. So Mary Magdalene comes from there and uh, maybe she was enticed by pagan cultures. There are a lot of books about her. There is a brand new church there called Duke Ultum. What's that mean? Set out into the deep. And there's a beautiful mosaic of her, the altarpiece there, the asp of the altarpiece where Jesus is driving the seven demons out of Mary. And there's a boat in one of the side chapels where the the altar is inside the boat. It's kind of neat. And eight pillars in this church and each pillar representing a different woman of the Bible. Mary Magdalene, she is present at the crucifixion of Jesus. She is present when they're taking him down, deposing him from the cross, lying him in the tomb. And she is there when he rises from the dead. She has an encounter with an angel. And Jesus says, don't touch me. And uh, he will encounter her in another way in the Eucharist later on. So Mary Magdalene is one of the main women in the Bible. She gets the title of apostle to the apostles because in John's gospel, she is the one who sees Jesus first. And she has to run and go tell the men. And that's amazing because it had to be male witnesses, three male witnesses. And Jesus in entrusting this healed sinner who he cast seven demons out of to go tell the men, go tell the men, go tell the men that I am risen. So Pope Francis has elevated her from a simple memorial mass to a feast day now. In 2016, Mary Magdalene got her own feast day in the Catholic Church. Pope Francis raised her from a memorial to a feast day on the liturgical calendar celebrated on July 22nd, the feast now of St. Mary Magdalene. She's mentioned 12 times in the canon in the synoptic canonical gospels, and more than most of the men is she mentioned. Pope Benedict said this, the story of Mary Magdalene reminds everyone of a fundamental truth. She is a disciple of Christ who in the experience of human weakness had the humility to ask for his help and has been healed by him and has followed him closely, becoming a witness of the power of his merciful love, which is stronger than sin and death.
So now we turn to some parables of Jesus. Remember in chapter 6, he was using plain speech. He gave a sermon on the plain and used plain speech, not, pardon, no pun intended. But he tells of the blessings. He tells of the woes. He just says it like it is. He tells them not to judge. But when the Pharisees and scribes come on the scene... He's going to use a different technique now. They have rejected his teaching, his message, and so he's going to use a more hidden way of teaching. And the synoptics really are chock full of parables, parables of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they see together the synoptic gospels have many parables. John, not a single parable. John's book is more theological, and he doesn't use parables like the synoptics do. He uses the book of signs and then the book of glory. But in the synoptic gospels, one-third of Jesus' teachings are parables. So they are important. Jesus' parables are simple. They're like simple stories, but they're full of rich, rich imagery. And they are memorable. They convey deep spiritual messages for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. So the Pharisees and the scribes don't get it. It's almost as if they have a veil over their eyes. The Pharisees and the scribes are fixated on trapping Jesus and and gotcha and catching him in some type of, they're snaring and trying to, wanting to get him in a snare. Last week we heard they're like children in the marketplace calling to one another. We piped to you and you did not dance. We wailed to you and you would not weep. Nothing Jesus says can be heard or seen over their great arrogance. Parables have simple illustrations, but deep internal analogies, and they're very spiritual. Sometimes little kids would understand, even when these Pharisees, these arrogant Pharisees, didn't. At that time, in chapter 10, Jesus will say, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to the little children. So it's a different way of teaching. Now, were there any parables in the Old Testament? Do you remember hearing any parables in the Old Testament? Or is this something new Jesus is doing? There are parables in the Old Testament, and I'll show you one. Old Testament prophets used parables, and when they did, it was usually an oracle of condemnation against those in power. So you see, Jesus is starting to use them now, too in his teaching. Let's look at the prophet Nathan. He will give a parable to King David because King David was in great power and he was spiritually deaf and spiritually blind at one point in his life. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking upon the roof of his house, his king palace, and he saw a woman on a roof bathing. And the woman was very beautiful and David sent and inquired about the woman. So he had lust of his eyes, and then that lust of his eyes entered into lust of his heart. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messenger and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. And she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am with child. She is with the king of Israel's child, and she has a husband, Uriah the Hittite, who's one of David's leading soldiers. David sends word to Joab, the commander, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked, how, how are you doing? Uh, how are the people faring? Is the war prospering? And David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. The king is giving him presents. The king wants him to go lie with his wife to cover up his own mistake, 
his own sin. And Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his own house. He did not lay with his wife. And, and they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. And David said to Uriah, have you come home from a journey and you did not go down to your own house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. How should I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? No way. He's a soldier of Israel. He will honor his duty. He will, he will honor the king of Israel. As you live and as your soul live, I will not do this thing, my king. And David said to Uriah, oh, re- remain here today also. And tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and he drank so that he made him drunk. David made sure his wine cup was always full, was always full. You can go home and lay with your wife now. This would be a good time to go home and be with your wife. And in the evening, he went out to lie on the couch with the servants of the Lord. And he would not go down to his own house. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. And he sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter said, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, that there he may draw back and be struck down and die. David's going to kill him now. He's going to put him on the front line. Because he was loyal to David. This is adultery, and it's one of the worst sins in the Bible. It's one of the three top sins that God hates. The book of Genesis calls it the greatest sin, the sin par excellence. According to rabbinic tradition, adultery is one of the three most serious sins, along with idolatry and murder. And people should avoid these three even unto death. Adultery is the only sexual offense listed in the Ten Commandments. And in Leviticus, it says if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death, both man and woman. So King David of Israel deserves death according to Torah, God's law. He is deserving of death, and so is she. And King David, the most powerful man in Israel, is in a real dilemma. What is he going to do? He's tried. He's tried to cover up his sin. Is he going to do the right thing? (laughs) No. He sets Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting that he might be struck down and die. And loyal Uriah on that day, as was ordered by the very king of Israel, who he served, was killed. King David was off the hook, right? Not with God, who knows all things. Bathsheba mourned her husband Uriah. And after the mourning period was over, David sent for her once again. He sent for Bathsheba, and he brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But this thing that David had done displeased the Lord greatly. And here comes Nathan the prophet to tell him a parable, because he's blind and he's deaf, and Nathan wants him to hear. So he tells him a story, and it is a parable, and it's a powerful parable that will help David see and will help David hear the Lord. So he sent Nathan to David. The Lord did. The Lord came to him and said, there are two men in a certain city. One is rich. The other is poor. The rich man had very, very, very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing. He just had one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat out of his morsel and drink from his own cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him, this little lamb. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's only little lamb who he loved, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. 
Now David's anger was growing greatly, greatly kindles his anger against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, that man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, that man is you. And that's where the ministry, that man is you, gets its name from this story. That man is you. Sometimes we're blind to our own sin as David was, and it was the parable that helped him see. So a parable is a small story with a big idea. And Nathan said to David, you are that man. And thus says the Lord God, I anointed you, David, king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives into your bosom. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was too little, I would add so much more to you. Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in my sight? You have smitten Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have slain him with the sword of the Ammonites. And therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, David, because you have despised me. You have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you in your own house. Now David sees his sin. He weeps. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. He's convicted of his sin. He wants to repent. He is no longer spiritually blind or deaf. I have sinned against you, Lord. And he goes out and he writes the most beautiful psalm, Psalm number 51, the psalm of contrition of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your love. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me of my sin. So the Old Testament has parables. And the parables come when truth needs to be spoken into power. When truth needs to be spoken into power, and that's the way Jesus is going to use the parables as well. He'll speak right into the power of the Pharisees, and it'll have a hidden secret message that some will understand and some won't. And it says in Luke 8, the disciples said, what does this parable mean? And, and the Lord says, to you it has been given known the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they're in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Those who are arrogant will not understand. Now remember last year when we studied Isaiah, he had a magnificent vision of the throne room of the Almighty God with the seraphim and the throne of God and the angel touches his lips with the hot coal and he is told that his sin has been forgiven. Behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin is forgiven. And he says, whom shall I send? Send me, here I am, here I am. He's ready to go. And we hear later, the people, the arrogant people won't listen to Isaiah. And it says they know not, they don't discern. He shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their minds so that they cannot understand. It's as if a veil is over them. And we hear this a lot in the scriptures where people see, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't understand. We heard it in Micah. They don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't understand his plan. In Matthew, they're, they're seeing, but they don't see. They're hearing, but they don't understand. And we hear it today in Luke. When will the people finally understand? When will everybody understand? Because I'm sure Jesus is not telling all these stories for people to not understand. They'll understand when they get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will make everything understandable. There are 10 in the upper room on the Sunday of Easter. The 10. And he comes through the locked doors and he breathes the Holy Spirit on them. Then on day 50, Pentecost, there are 120 in the upper room and the Holy Spirit comes down. And wow, did they ever understand. And then there are 3,000 who get baptized on Pentecost and they understand. Everything starts making sense. All the scriptures start coming together. John tells us that his disciples remembered what he said and they believed the scripture. 
when will they understand when they get the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and one of those gifts is understanding and knowledge is another one and it's all going to make sense all these parables we should be able to figure them out because we have the Holy Spirit so John doesn't use parables but the synoptics do and this parable all three synoptics have the parable of the sower Luke has a lot of parables probably the most I think and some of his are only in Luke and when those come up I'll try to point those out these are parables that are unique to Luke only some wonderful parables that only Luke has but it's an earthly story with a deep spiritual meaning so let's look at this first one the parable of the sower a sower went out to sow his seed and he sowed some fell along the path and was trodden underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it and some fell on the rock and as it grew up it withered away because it had no moisture and some fell among the thorns and the thorns grew with it and choked it and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold and he said he called out he who has ears to hear let him hear and the people are like what and the disciples asked him what do you mean by this parable and he says to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God and he'll explain it to them but for others for others they are in parables so that they may be seeing and not see they may be hearing and not understand so he doesn't want these guys the arrogant ones to understand they're going to be veiled the parable is this the seed is the word of God some falls on the pathway the ones along the path are those who have heard and the devil comes and he takes away the word from their hearts that they may not believe and be saved the ones on the rock are those when they hear the word they receive it with joy rocky ground but these have no root they believe for a while and then in the time of temptation they fall away and then there's the thorny ground and as for those that fell among the thorns they are like those who hear but as they go on their way they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature and then there's the good soil the good soil as for that in the good soil they are those who hear the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and it brings forth fruit with patience with patience with patience you know how a field grows the seed takes a while what's the hardest part for farmers preparing the soil the soil's really important you gardeners you know that if you don't get your soil prepared the plants not going to do very well the hardest part is preparing the soil you want good soil if you want a good yield you need good soil you're not planting those seeds for nothing you're planting them for a harvest otherwise you wouldn't be planting you want a harvest and you want a great harvest you want a lot of tomatoes you want a lot of cucumbers you want a lot of squash whatever you're planting Jesus spreads his word everywhere because he's come for all some people say well why did he throw it on the rocks why did he throw he, he throws it everywhere it's for all people he'll throw it everywhere he asks us what's the condition of your heart soil to receive my word is it rocky is it thorny is it full of briars does it have moisture does it have fertilizer is it good soil what's the condition of your own heart soil and that can change sometimes we have good soil other times we don't how many souls are you going to harvest in your own lifetime how do you sow his word to others what's your harvest going to be at the end of your life how many people are you going to have told jesus to the harvest is plenty but the laborers are few we're the laborers 
We're the ones planting the word, spreading the word, evangelizing the word. If we have good heart soil, if we can receive the word, and if it can multiply in us and it can harvest others. Remember when Isaiah said that his word never goes forth void, but it always accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it. The pathway is really hard. That ground is really hard. It doesn't get the water. It doesn't get the nutrients. The word goes in one ear and out the other. The seeds just lay there. Birds come and pick them off. I planted grass seed this year. Gone. The bird, I saw the birds out there on my window. I thought, ah, there goes the grass seed. The rocky ground, the word was great at first, but it doesn't take root. It doesn't go deep enough. It's not firmly rooted. The thorny soil... There's a lot of thorns in our life, a lot of attachments that we have to the world, to riches, to pleasure. It chokes it out. We're attached to too many other things. But the good soil is when you hear the word and you understand the word, you internalize the word and you hear it and you obey it. Okay? And then he has another mini parable about a lamp on a stand. This is a little shorty, but three of the synoptics have it. No one lights a lamp and covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed. He puts it on a stand so that those who may enter will see the light. For nothing that is hid that shall not be made manifest, nor anything secret that shall not be made known and come to the light. We're having that in our church right now. Things are coming to the light. For nothing that is hid shall not be made manifest, and nothing that is secret that will not be made known and come into the light. Jesus is the light of the world. He exposes sin. And he's the healer. He's the divine physician that can heal sin. And this parable says, take heed then how you hear. How do you hear the word? Because to the Hebrews, hear means obey. Hear means obey. Hear has an action to it. They always think when hear and obey as one word. It's inseparable in the Hebrew language. Hearing means obedience. I'll give you an example. When my kids were little, I'd say, go run, take the trash out. And they'd hear and obey. Out they'd go. Then when they got to be teenagers, they just heard only. I'd say, take out the trash. Did you take out the trash? Tomorrow's trash day. Did anyone take out the trash? Oh, they heard. They heard me say it, and there goes the trash can. They missed it. They heard, but they didn't obey. So for, for Jesus wants us to hear the word and obey the word, be obedient to the word, do what the word says. Take heed how you hear. For to him who has will more be given. And from him who has not... Even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So hear and obey is one action. And you don't light a lamp. This has a parallel to the seed. The lighting of a lamp is parallel to the receiving of the seed. The seed has not been truly received if there's no fruit or in your life. In the same way, the light of Christ has not been truly lit in you if it's not shining out of you. If it's not shining out of your temple, out of your body. It has to shine that they may know the deeds that you do and give glory to who? To God. How brightly do you shine for Jesus? How bright is the light of Christ within you? I shine at Bible study. Everyone at Bible study knows I shine. But I don't shine on Saturday night when I'm going out drinking with my buddies. Oh, I don't talk about it there. Oh, no, 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 no. That's just for Bible study. That's that part of my life. Do you compartmentalize? That was part one of the Gospel of Luke, chapter eight, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.